the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I'm Georgie Borman, a journalist, author, and commentator with West Coast Roots. This is a 180 cast breakdown session where I take a critical look at the big ideas that shape our world and how people are changing their minds. Welcome to the 180 cast. Welcome back to the 180 cast. You have clicked into another breakdown session where I talk about news and big ideas and break down and analyze highlights from the 180 cast interviews, which are always and exclusively with people who have changed their mind on a particular subject, ranging from switching parties to veganism to abortion and a whole host of other topics. Also, your thoughts, of course, are going to be aired on the flip phone and I'm very excited to talk about that. And as usual, we will explore a little conventional wisdom and see if it runs up against the facts. This week, we are going to be talking about whether or not it's true that young people just don't want to work. Hmm. We've got a lot to cover today, but before we get started, don't forget you can follow the 180 cast on Twitter and Instagram at 180 cast. Tag me and don't be shy. You can also follow me at Georgie underscore Borman and subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. And I would be ever so grateful. All right, moving on to top stories. Okay, we have a lot to cover today, including, yes, Impeachment Gate. That's a terrible name, Impeachment Gate. I prefer Ukraine do that. That was my uh, uh, favorite of all of the suggested titles for this quote-unquote scandal. So Ukraine do that is what I'm going to go with. And uh, we'll also talk a little bit about Tulsi Gabbard's opinion on free speech, as well as a very moving testimony in the Amber Geiger case, which was just closed. <laughs> Okay, a few bullet points. We now know that Adam Schiff, Democrat from California, Adam Schiff, knew about the whistleblower ahead of time. And that whistleblower went to the Intelligence Committee, but did not share the classified info that he brought to Adam Schiff and the Democrats with the other side, with the GOP members of the Intelligence Committee, which is a breach of rules as I understand it. Trump has uh, aptly named Adam Schiff Shifty Schiff, which is now my favorite political nickname that I have ever heard. I think that's just great, Shifty Schiff. Bullet point number two. Zelensky says that he didn't know that the aid had been frozen. So none of the Ukrainian officials 
have so far led us to believe that they knew that the foreign aid had been suspended that they thought was coming their way, some $250 million, I believe. And so that, of course, puts the idea that the that uh, President Trump was asking for a quid pro quo kind of that, that kind of sweeps that out of the picture unless it was something like Trump was saying, well, you know, I feel like a month afterward that they haven't really a month after the call that they haven't really done enough as to what I was asking them, even though I was asking it in a kind of a roundabout way. And so I'm going to freeze their aid until they really uh, pick up the momentum on investigating the Bidens. I guess you could make that argument, I guess, but I'm not seeing the huge scandal that some other people are making it out to be. And it certainly does not seem to be a crime. You could say that that's kind of it's kind of nasty, cheap and nasty and, and tacky for the, the president to be pressuring foreign officials to investigate 2020 rivals or the family of 2020 rivals. And and I would ag- agree that that's, that's pretty tacky and, and not something that I would desire the president to do. But at the same time, you know, I think David Marcus over at the Federalist gave a, a pretty fair analysis of this when he said that, you know, Hunter has gotten a pretty sweet gig uh, making like around 50k a month for Burisma with very little expertise and he's been sitting on that board or he was sitting on that board and then in 2014 I believe he took a trip on Air Force Two with Biden while Biden was VP and then 10 days later he took a trip to to China and then 10 days later uh, got a another sweet deal sitting on the board of a Chinese fund so it's not unreasonable to suspect that there's something shady going on there and that companies are taking advantage of Hunter's proximity to the White House. And that is something that should be investigated. Whether or not Trump asking China to investigate it is very productive, I don't know. China seems like one of the the least one of the countries with the least integrity as far as how the government handles investigations. I mean, (laughs) does guilt really matter? It's like whatever the party decides is, is what's going to happen. So I don't think that that's productive, but I think it shows, of course, Trump and his Trump personality is, is doubling down on this naturally as we all should have expected that he would. However, However, I will say, this is the third point that I'm going to make about this situation. What still hasn't been adequately examined to me and not adequately critiqued, in my opinion, and please, if you want to point me in the right direction, you can text me or call at 323-999-1802, is why Rudy Giuliani is so inextricably involved in this whole affair as Trump's personal lawyer. You can say the whistleblower complaint is motivated by partisanship and still see that if the records of Giuliani's meetings are correct, that he's kind of playing a role that doesn't belong to him. And it's his deep involvement in all of this and pressuring foreign officials to investigate that suggests to me that although it's not a crime, as I just said, I I don't see the evidence that it's a crime, that this isn't about Trump's 
benevolent or, you know, just responsible attempt to clean up Ukraine's corruption. I think it's more about what he can get out of it personally. And this is a happy coincidence that he happens to be able to investigate one of his 2020 rivals. And it seems reckless, in my opinion, to have Rudy Giuliani so involved in this and relaying messages back and forth between Trump and foreign officials because he's circumventing the national security processes that that normally happen with state work to do this for Trump. So he seems to be acting acting purely on Trump's personal interests and not in the the interests of national security and the interests of uh, state diplomatic relations. If Trump wanted Giuliani to do state work, to do work for the State Department, he should have hired him into the State Department. If he wants him to do work for him personally, representing his personal interests, then he should remain as Trump's personal lawyer and not be involved in this stuff and leave that to the people whose job it is to make sure that funds are going to countries that are not going to be squandered in corruption and so on and so forth. Not a good look, kind of suspicious, kind of slimy. I just, I have to say it. Is all of this an impeachable offense? I don't think so. But I think it shows why so many people, when Trump was nominated, were extremely, extremely concerned about how his presidency was going to play out. Because he seems to be just sort of willing to get down and dirty enough to make impeachment a likely pro- uh, prospect and to provide a lot of ammunition to his political rivals. That seems pretty obvious at this point. If if Trump was not Trump in terms of his personality, this presidency or this term would be going so well. So well. But now we're wrapped up in all of this because Trump, Donald Trump is Donald Trump. That's that's my opinion on it. Now, speaking of the freedom to say what you want, whether it is to foreign officials or not, I want to talk about uh, Tulsi Gabbard and what her opinion is on Kamala Harris's suggestion that Trump should be suspended from Twitter. Listen to this. Uh, no. I think freedom of speech is something that is an important uh, foundational right uh, in our democracy. Um, I think that the things that are coming from Donald Trump are things that are inciting a lot of divisiveness in our country, though. And this is one of the many reasons uh, why I believe it's important that voters vote to defeat Donald Trump. We, we did, On a serious note, though, we can't, we can't just... Uh, cancel or shut down or silence those who we disagree with or who hold different views or who who say things even that that we strongly disagree with or abhor. These freedoms and principles enshrined in our Constitution are things that we have to take very seriously. Uh, I and, and so many others who wear the uniform of this country are willing to give our lives to protect and defend this freedom of speech, even for those who are saying things that we disagree with. And here, we all thought that boilerplate liberalism was dead. Somebody call Bill Maher. 
this is craziness. We have to respect the Constitution? You're kidding. I, you know, you can't see the reporter who asked this question, but I'm sure his or her eyes were bugging out of their heads. What do you mean we can't just cancel anybody we disagree with? Seriously? For real? I, I don't understand why Tulsi Gabbard is not more popular. Well, no, I do understand that, but I wish it weren't so. If Donald Trump was running against Tulsi Gabbard, I'm sure Tulsi Gabbard would win hands down because she seems like an eminently reasonable person as far as people on the left. She even, get this, she even doesn't think that it should be legal to kill babies in the third trimester. She's like the only one of the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates who doesn't think that that third-term abortion should be totally legal and elective. I mean, it's still a ridiculous position. Abortion, legal abortion in general is a ridiculous position. But compared to the people she's running against, she seems like the most even-keeled, coolest, like, level head out of all of them, far and above. I just love the beginning of that soundbite. She goes, uh, no. She doesn't even have to think about it. I don't know if Beto O'Rourke or Buttigieg, you know, or um, Biden was asked the same question, but uh, no should be the answer that everybody has. You can't just silence people you disagree with, especially the president of the United States. I feel like it's just a little bit kind of just like a little tiny bit important that the president be able to speak to the people uh, without having to go through the press. Just regardless of where you fall on the whole fake news thing, what you think about CNN, I just think that that's important. And I say this as somebody who really doesn't like the president's tweets. Did you see what he tweeted about China? He congratulated China on 70 years of the, the, the People's Republic of China. Congratulations on your 70-year anniversary of murdering millions of people. Ugh. It's, 2019, it's 2019, people. It's 2019. Moving on to a slightly more serious note, Amber Geiger, the Dallas police officer who fatally shot Botham Jean, has been found guilty of murder. The jury only deliberated for about two hours, came out with a guilty verdict for murder. This is from the Dallas Morning News. Uh, Geiger, 31, fatally shot 26-year-old Gene in his apartment. She was off duty but still in uniform when she shot him with her service weapon. She mistook his apartment for her own and thought Gene was a burglar. She is the first Dallas police officer to be convicted of murder since the 1970s. The most interesting part of the trial, in my opinion, it was a testimony from uh, Botham's brother, Brant, Brant Jean. And I'm going to play that for you here because it is one of the most powerful pieces of audio I have heard in some time. I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing 
that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. That's not something you hear every day. If you watch the video, this was, of course, an extremely emotional statement for him to make. He's pulling at his his collar the whole time. He's choking up. He's having a hard time finding it. I think that just shows how sincere this man is just deep down into the core of his being that he really wishes the best for Amber Geiger, despite the fact that she killed her brother or killed his brother, his older brother, just shot him dead. 26 years old, 26 year old accountant shot, shot dead in his own apartment. Imagine the, the bitterness that you and I would probably have toward that person for our entire lives, it it could consume you. And really the only thing that can free you from something like that and free you to forgive is the forgiveness that you've received in Christ. It was really, really a powerful testimony to the ability of, of Christ to, to change people's nature from being bitter and vindictive and hateful toward showing love to people who have wronged you in such a profound way. And then toward the end, when he asked the judge, can I give her a hug? He looks like if he, if, if his request isn't granted that he might explode, like he wanted so badly to physically be able to show this woman that he loved her and cared for her and wanted her to know Christ. It was really, and of course, it, when when she grants the, uh, when the judge grants the request, Geiger just comes running up to him and just flings herself into his arms and they, they hug for probably a solid minute. And it's good that justice is being shown in in this situation after so many cases where it seems like officers got off the hook for being at a minimum very reckless in in using their service weapons against people who uh it's not it's not apparent that those people mean them harm if you recall a few years ago in 2016 Daniel Shaver was shot dead in a Mesa, Arizona hotel hallway while attempting to comply with a series of very specific commands from an officer. This is what got me really spitting mad about this whole issue of police brutality and very, very frustrated with the way that some of the people on the right were handling the issue as if officers never do anything wrong. Um, Anyway, Shaver just, he reached uh, back 
while he was crawling down the hallway, he reached back briefly, presumably to pull his shorts up. That's what it looked like, you know, while he's crawling toward the officer at his command. And then that officer fatally shot him in that moment. And he was acquitted, acquitted to the outrage of people across the political spectrum. Now, not all of these cases are the same. Uh, Michael Brown was was pretty um, demonstrably, it, it, it was it was pretty clear that he had attacked the police officer in, in that case. So let's not broad brush in one way or another. I am glad that justice is served in this particular circumstance, despite uh, Geiger's defense that she was in the wrong apartment. I don't think that that's, ne- that's an excuse to pull out your weapon and, and fatally shoot someone the first time you see them. And he was all the way across the room, by the way, just barely rising up from the couch. Like, what the heck is going on? Somebody is entering my apartment. But let's just leave it on the note that there should be justice, but also um, Christ is abounding in mercy. And even if you are going to jail for a very long time, and justice is being served for the things that you did, there's still forgiveness in Christ. And I think that that is something that's very important to remember. And when we lose sight of that, I think that we can be consumed, as I said, by our bitterness, and we can become extremely cynical about the world and about the people on this earth that we live with. With that... We are going to move on to interview highlights from episode 28 with Jerry Taylor, which I so cleverly titled, Policy Analyst Goes Cold on Climate Change Skepticism. Here's one of the comments from Jerry Taylor that stood out to me. Take a listen. I mean, it's all, it's it's human nature to be a lot more skeptical about arguments you don't want to believe than to than to provide that same degree of skepticism and due diligence to arguments you do want to believe. And as I began that process, I found that the story I just told you, Georgie, was, Georgie, was playing out again and again and again and again and again from climate scientists on my side of the debate. Seems pretty simple, but I don't think we really want to admit it. And we don't take that into account nearly as much as we should. And as I so painfully illustrated in the last breakdown session, I fell victim to confirmation bias and to not fully examining the uh, opposing, the, the data that would contradict my opinion a couple a couple weeks ago in an in issue uh, regarding ectopic pregnancies. But it's so true. And nobody wants to admit that we're not even the most dedicated journalist who strives to be objective is going to have a hard time really examining the evidence from people that they do not want to believe because we all have our presuppositions. We all have our worldviews, as I said last time, and those are going to have a dramatic impact on the way that we perceive information coming toward us from one direction or another. And we tend to ascribe motives to 
the people who are handing us that information, which is another really, really big aspect of this and leads me into the uh, next quick thought from Jerry that I'm going to play. I had accepted the idea that the scientists I was working with who were skeptics skeptics about climate change were being honest with me and that they were they were giving me a straight story about, you know, the nature of the debate. And I could no longer trust that to be true. And so what what I began to do was the due diligence I should have been doing in the first place. They weren't always being purposefully mendacious like this. Sometimes they were just cherry picking data. Sometimes they were publishing things in non-peer reviewed sources that were getting shot up by uh, other people in the field. Sometimes they were misrepresenting studies. Sometimes they were ignoring, uh, you know, rafts of evidence which would uh, call into question uh, statements or conclusions they were making. They weren't even acknowledging these were controversial issues, and they were hotly controversial. And so I got to the point where I, I didn't feel like I was I could comfortably trust people on my side of the debate to be capable and honest. Because of course we're going to trust people who share our our worldview and our presuppositions more than somebody who doesn't. And we tend to think, I'm just not specifically talking about Jerry's situation, but in in this debate in general regarding climate change, that the people who disagree with us don't just disagree because they're interpreting the data differently or they have a different data set that they're working off of or a different premise that you that that may or may not be mistaken, but we say they must be lying to us, right? Because Jerry used to believe that the people on the other side of the debate, the so-called climate alarmists, were 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 being dishonest, and now he's saying, and I I wasn't there, so I can't say whether or not I could attest to this being true or not but jerry's saying that now he's seeing on his own side quote-unquote side that that those people were not being completely honest and they weren't always being purposefully mendacious so he's making a an important distinction here between people who are who are deliberately trying to obscure the truth or or twist the truth and people who are simply letting their confirmation bias and their desire to see certain things in the data uh, influence the way that they are handling that information. And all of those things are important to consider. And in order for us to just have a civil discourse on this issue, because look, Greta Thunberg has totally, she is the epitome of the climate alarmism, right? And most normal people see the things that she says in her speech about people destroying her dreams, and they say, that is totally unreasonable. I can't have a conversation with anybody who thinks that way. So we have to start from a place of saying, okay, let's come together and let's look at the information. Let's let's make sure that we're looking at the same types of information. Let's make sure that we're following a scientific process and go from there on what does the data actually say? 
How do we get the most complete picture of all of the data instead of looking at just one half of a graph or another half of a graph or cutting it off at a certain point, you know, cutting it off in 1936 or cutting it off at 1970 and, and making things appear one way or another. Let's look at all of it. Let's make sure that all of it was gathered in a, a scientifically sound manner and say, what exactly does this say? And can we disregard the appeals to authority to a certain extent and just look at that and say, yes, this person is a scientist. Yes, this person has a PhD, regardless on what side of the what side of the debate they come down on. Can we disregard that and say, okay, well, what is he actually saying? And does it make sense? And that seems to be what uh, what Jerry Taylor has endeavored to do. And uh, I greatly appreciate that because that is very hard to find, especially on a topic as sensitive and uh, hotly contested as climate change. Speaking of climate change, that leads us into a comment left on the flip phone, which I would love to play for you in just a minute. But first, we are going to talk about the woke of the week. (laughs) Because I would like to laugh at something. So Naomi Wolf, who wrote a book recently that was totally shot up by journalists for having multiple errors in it. She's a a feminist with a PhD in women's studies, I think. She recently retweeted a tweet from um, Titiana McGrath, which is a parody account. (laughs) Is a parody account of radical intersectional feminism. So, so <clears throat> this is a tweet from Titiana. Dr. McKinnon is so right. She's talking about a series of tweets from this person, Dr. McKinnon, who's talking about transgenderism and uh, discrimination by way of having preferences for somebody with one set of genitals or another. She goes, relations with men attempting to live as women must be gay. Okay. And so Naomi Wolf retweets that with a comment. And she says, the shameful anti-trans movement in the UK has connections with the U.S. Coke-funded Heritage Foundation and its cynical manufacturing of hatred should be examined very critically. In other words, if, if men have a preference for biological women, the Koch brothers are to blame. Oh my goodness. I love it. And honestly, when I first started reading... Um, tweets from from Titiana McGrath, I was like, oh, yes, this must be a radical feminist, depending on which tweets you see. Some of them are very obviously parody, and some of them are really hard to tell because because life has become stranger than fiction, and so much of what we see nowadays is just beyond parody, and we couldn't imagine it happening five years ago, but here we are. As I love to say, it's 2019. Hmm. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to 2019. Okay, now we can talk about the comments from the flip phone. Which I am so happy that you have left for me because I really do love hearing from you, whether it is a voicemail or a text 
or whether you're catching up with me on um, the 180 Cast Facebook page or Twitter or however you want to talk to me, I am happy to talk to you as long as you don't call me names and I won't call you names. And it's almost like we can have a reasonable discussion or something. Anyway, let me play this for you. Hi, I'm Ms. Gabriel Bush. I'm calling the 180 Cast flip phone. I'm calling response to the latest episode on climate change. I thought it was very exciting to hear. I am a former science teacher and current electrical engineer, and I myself have changed my opinion on the issue of climate change. Uh, before, when I considered myself a skeptic, it was largely in due, it was largely due to videos from the Heartland Institute, specifically ones that would critique things like Dr. Michael Mann's um, hockey stick graph. Uh, they had attempts to show that uh, he tried to hide information or maybe did a statistic wrong or things like that. What I was not aware at the time was that the hockey stick has been replicated time and time again. Michael Mann's um, his, um, methods have been scrutinized uh, so many times. And um, right now, his, his hockey stick has been not only replicated, but extended. Now, before I go further, I would specifically like to leave my resources, or rather, the resources that helped change my mind for the listeners, and they can decide for themselves. Um, I learned a lot by watching YouTube videos from British science journalist Peter Hatfield, who goes by the name Potholer54. If you just search Potholer54 on YouTube, you can find him also at the website skepticalscience.com. Those two sources helped to change my mind, and now I, I currently fully accept the, the scientific consensus on climate change. Um, and, of course, that's always up, up to change, but uh, I, I don't think uh, that will change anytime soon, kind of like how my opinion or the scientific consensus on gravity won't change anytime soon. So thank you so much to Gabriel for reaching out and sharing his own 180 story on the subject and sharing his resources. If you didn't catch that, that's Potholer54 is the account on YouTube that he's talking about that belongs to the British science journalist. And uh, Gabriel actually sent me a series of videos that are essentially a debate between Potholer and Tony Heller, who is a prominent um, climate change skeptic who is also, incidentally, uh, an engineer of microchip processors, I believe, and he also has a degree in geology. So I've been meaning to watch that the series of videos as a debate. I think that this is going to be very, very interesting, but it is hard to find those direct interactions between two people who study this for significant periods of time or or for their living. So I will get back to you on the next breakdown session and maybe share some of my thoughts on that. Yes. So if you have a 180 story to share, like Gabriel's, please call 323-999-1802. Or if you're a little bit phone shy and you prefer to text it, you can do that as well. Moving on. I want to talk pretty quickly about something that I wrote about this week, which I've been taking some heat for from, from people who are, are big fans of Trump and nearly everything that he does. I wrote something... Okay, so the title is, is, is fairly inflammatory. And yes, I did choose the title. Sometimes editors change it, sometimes they don't. But it said, Trump is shamelessly bribing farmers with cash handouts. And 
this is eminently true. Okay, so we've had $24.5 billion in direct payment payouts through the market facilitation program to farmers as it's framed as relief for the trade war because of the escalating retaliatory tariffs between China and the United States that are, are having an impact on our farmers, such as people who farm corn, um, sorghum, several other crops, almonds, cherries, things like that. $24.5 billion, by the way, is more than twice what we lost on the bailouts of the big three automakers in Detroit. We lost $9.3 billion on that. And I don't understand why these are being called bailouts. Both right and left-leaning outlets, it seems, have have taken it upon themselves to name this as a bailout program. It's not a bailout program because where are the giant farms that we are being told are going to go under and just drown out thousands and thousands of jobs and we're going to you know lose our supply of, of corn or something like that because some of these bigger farms are going to go under. Where are those farms? They're not there. We're not looking at, at, at large producers who are on the, the brink of insolvency here. We are looking at a program that is distributing money based off of per unit output at a predetermined rate for quote-unquote trade relief. This isn't to keep farms afloat. This is to basically say, my bad, um, on Trump's part, for causing this trade war that is obviously not going great for the farmers. But is it going to make or break them? Probably not. $24.5 billion. Billion dollars on top of the money that the subsidies that farmers already receive through the farm bill. I had a reader reach out to me uh, yesterday and say, hey, I don't know if you said this exactly the way that you should have to make it eminently clear that not everything in the farm bill is subsidies for farmers. Yes, that is absolutely true. There's a lot in the farm bill that has to do with funding the nutrition programs like SNAP, and those aren't all direct, you know, everything in the farm bill isn't direct subsidies to farmers. Absolutely true. Great point. However, $24.5 $24.5 billion on top of what they are already getting in the farm bill, which is like, like, that's like 20%, according to this farmer, it's like 20% of the farm bill, which is going to cost almost half a trillion dollars over the next five years. So isn't that, can we talk about GOP welfare just every once in a while? I would just like to just... I would just like to bring it up and say, hey, GOP politicians have their constituencies as well that they like to give handouts to, to buy their votes. I just, there, I said it. And I have a lot of evidence in this piece that that is exactly what's going on because most of the donations to campaigns from the basic um, crop production and processing industry go to Republicans. The vast majority of it went to Donald Trump in 2016. 
And Trump basically admitted that he's 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 paying off the farmers and trying to uh, tamp down their anger about the trade war by saying, hey, look, I'm giving you so much money. This program is so huge. Just listen. This program is so huge that we've already paid a million dollars in interest payments because the government offices cannot process the applications for these handouts fast enough. GOP welfare is a thing. You can't tell me it's not. And if you also want to read a little bit more about that, I did an article a couple years ago about um, tax credits, which are just another, it's just the way that Republicans prefer to hand out welfare. Whether or not you think that that is good or not, whether or not you think that is effective and moral, can we at least acknowledge that both Democrats and Republicans like to redistribute wealth? There. That's it. I said it. Let's move on to something else, which is, I hinted at the very beginning, um, we should talk about whether or not the idea that young people don't want to work should be debunked because I'm sure you've heard it from, from people who are older than you. And they say, ah, oh, oh my gosh, young people nowadays, you just can't find good help. It's basically a cliche now. You just can't find good help. They just don't want to work. Well, I looked into this. I looked into this just for you. And advocates for minimum wage hikes who are often very concerned with the wages of young people, especially just getting out of college and whether or not they're going to be able to afford rent and afford to pay down their student loans, etc., etc., they have often argued that higher entry-level wages would attract people into the workforce and back into the workforce for people who are older and have dropped out of the workforce. But it turns out that employers are struggling not just to find and retain quality employees, but even to get low-performing workers to stick around. And I have heard this over and over and over and over again from employers who are having such a hard time finding help to the point where they can barely try to expand their business. It is There's so many growing pains because they can't find trustworthy employees who are going to show up on time and do the job. That's it. That's all they really want. Show up on time, be trustworthy, follow directions. It's not that hard. There are so many jobs out there right now. It is so much easier now in 2019 than when I got out of college, when we were still in a very, very slowly recovering economy. And I ended up working for 10, 10 an hour at an office supply store because I could not get the type of quality jobs that you can get right now. Just a little bit of perspective. If you're listening and you're on the younger side, you guys have really good opportunities right now. I know people are talking about maybe we're heading into a downturn. Or we're not in a downturn right now. There is no better time to get into the workforce than right now. Get your foot in the door. Earn some money. It's not just to cover gaps in your resume, whether you're bussing tables or waitressing or flipping burgers or whatever it is. 
all honest work is good work. Just as I said, okay, just to back up my claim here, the young people are less inclined to work than maybe they previously were is uh, the summer employment for teens over this past summer is just over 34%. That's down from 51% in 2000, 51% summer employment for teens and notably far lower than recession levels at any point in the five preceding decades, far lower than recession levels at any point in the five preceding decades. Employment for 16 to 24 year olds is only 56.2%. And of course, you can say so many of those people are in college, but then you have to think, well, are they in college because they don't really want to go straight into the workforce and they would rather kind of goof off for four years and and learn some interesting things in college instead of go straight into the workforce. Debatable, debatable. Labor force participation for 20 to 24 year olds is 75.7%. That's labor force participation period that's not full-time or part-time that's just are you participating at all that's down 8.1 points from its high 30 years ago and below what it was at the same time of year in 09 in the midst of the great recession in the middle of the great recession it's below that point and that doesn't just apply to non-college educated people either According to the Harvard Business Business Review, this is all from a piece I wrote a couple weeks ago, by the way, the unemployment rate for recent college graduates is still higher than it was pre-recession. So do young people want to work less now than in the past? I think that it is hard to argue otherwise. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. You can call the flip phone again at 323-999-1802 and share your thoughts. You can flip out about anything I said that you find is um, totally outrageous or you can try to flip my position or tell me about your own flip-flop slash 180. That's 323-999-1802. And of course, again, you can follow the podcast on social media at 180cast and you can follow me at Georgie underscore Borman. Before you leave... If you have a spare minute, go ahead and give a review to the podcast on iTunes. That really, 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 really helps in getting this podcast in front of more ears so we can have um, an expanded community of people who are willing to be reasonable and listen to people who disagree with them, in particular people who have sincerely changed their minds on a subject as Jerry Taylor did and as Anthony Watts did in the opposite 180, which you can listen to. That's episode 16, I believe. So if you want to get both sides of the story, Anthony Watts, Jerry Taylor on climate change, there you go. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless.
Executive producer Kevin McCullough. Music by Ruthie Kraft and Joe Kim Nordenson. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.